Chapter 3. What does practitioner action research look like? One of the best ways to learn the possibilities of practitioner action research is through reading accounts of their work. We are fortunate that in the last two decades, an increasing number of excellent examples have found their way into print. This in part reflects the growing openness of some academic journals to this genre of research. The creation of some journals that explicitly showcase action research and books like the Practitioner Inquiry series edited by Marilyn Cochran Smith and Susan Little for Teachers College Press. When reviewing examples of practitioner action research, it becomes readily apparent that approaches are wide-ranging, from informal observations to highly formalized research projects. In short, there is no one right way to approach the issue of studying one's own self and one's own practice site. Kism, Sanders, and Zitlow suggest that practitioners are constantly engaged informally in practice-centered inquiry. Quote, we recognize that teachers naturally do seem to use a form of inquiry to help deal with the problematic realities of teaching. It is a process that has not often been articulated, but is familiar in the experience of many. In a given situation, effective teachers often, a, consider the situation based on the information available to them as participants in this particular teaching learning process, and select some action, a practice, tentatively based on their understanding of what is educationally desirable in that situation feasible, and likely to be effective in the sense of resulting in desired outcomes. B. Try out the practice and observe its results. And C. Revise the practice if necessary, correct for flaws observed, and try it again. End quote. Practitioner action research translates this type of informal questioning of practice to one of more intentional and systematic inquiry that lends itself to problem solving as well as possible dissemination to a larger audience. The following examples should not be perceived as exhaustive in terms of the action research currently being done by insiders in their own sites. Although more accounts by practitioners are appearing in print, action researchers often enter the research process as a means of solving their own practice dilemmas or questions rather than necessarily to contribute to the field of education as a whole. They may never consider writing a professional paper, and the rewards of publication may be outweighed for educators by the time and energy required to prepare the research for the publication process. At the same time, there is much to be learned through the accounts of action researchers as they pursue research in their own sites. Methodologically, there are many variations in insider action research, as well as many epistemological complexities, that can best be addressed by those working within these genres of research. We are also in an age of top-down school reforms and innovations. Our own sense is that these are best offset by the expert knowledge of practitioner researchers who can supply evidence regarding their own practices. The practice and dissemination of practitioner action research, then, has implications for individual educators and offers the possibility of impacting the larger field of educational theory and practice. As educators begin to research their own practices and sites, they often read academic research with new eyes. They not only gather ideas for their own practices and research, but also find that their own research pushes back on some of what is known or expert knowledge. We are also seeing higher education academics begin not only to teach action research, but also to carry it out in their own university classrooms. These developments offer a kind of dynamic interaction that has the potential to strengthen practitioner action research as well as that done by academics. The examples in this chapter illustrate a wide range of current practitioner action research. The example of Herman Wilmarth's work illustrates self-study research conducted from the perspective of improving her walk and talk, her intentions as an instructor coupled with the feedback of a challenging student. Richards' research will resonate with many practitioners. What do I do with this class when it looks like nothing I do is effective? While initially investigating her own classroom practices, Richards crosses hierarchical lines and invites her students to be co-investigators in discovering what might help them become more successful students. 
Russell provides an illustration of the potential for practitioner action research to broaden into empowering practice. In Russell's case, other professionals became involved in the process and eventually spoke out on a district level. Ballinger's work is a striking example of the power of the insider's lens brought to bear on research data. Only through her tacit knowledge of the children's relationships could Ballinger have come to the insights that allowed her to push the edges theoretically. The examples from both the Denby Action Research Group and the Principles Group demonstrate the use of the group process to support the conceptualization and implementation of research. Both groups function as sounding boards, providing the opportunity for professional dialogue, which is often difficult to build into the school day. Methodologies in these studies vary. A number of researchers utilize journal writing as a way to capture their day-to-day reflections and encounters. The principals group use journals as a way to bring the reality of their school days and decision-making to the group as a whole. The researchers in the Dinbai group use story writing as a way to initiate dialogue about pressing professional concerns. Herman Wilmarth responded to an extensive email from a student, using it to create a self-reflective dialogue with his critiques of her teaching. A number of the researchers relied on relationships with colleagues as part of the research process, critical friends with whom they could have sustained dialogues regarding their findings and methodologies. Both Richards and Morgan moved students into the roles of collaborators in their research processes. Observations, whether of their own classroom environment and student interactions with materials, or the shadowing of students as they went through their school day, were used to contextualize and understand the students' experiences of the school day. Audio taping class activities and transcribing the tapes for analysis were used in a similar way. Teachers seemed to see taping as a way to capture the unfolding of the day-to-day educational process and to be able to analyze it later. These and other methodologies for practitioner research are discussed in depth in Chapter 6. These examples of practitioner action research touch on a range of possibilities. There are examples of university school collaborations, research across authority lines such as students and teachers, research as part of professional development, and seasoned as well as new teachers studying their own classrooms, exploring the theoretical implications of their studies. The hope is that research possibilities pertinent to the reader's own practice site will begin to crystallize through reading the research accounts offered here. Self-Study Action Research, Jill M. Herman Wilmarth and the Case of a Disruptive Pre-Service Teacher As described in Chapter 2, the value of self-study research is increasingly being recognized. The focus is not, quote, on the self per se, but on the space between self and the practice engaged in, end quote. Bolo and Pinagar warned that self-study is a balancing act, veer too far in either direction, and the researcher risks creating a confessional turn it too far outward, and it becomes a traditional study. Highland and Nofka make the distinction in their own study that while they gather student data from the courses they teach, the focus is to inform questions about our own practice. Self-study researchers have the option of working alone or in collaboration with each other, with a focus on an ongoing understanding and an improvement of one's own practice. In the following example, we highlight the work of Jill M. Herman Wilmarth, a teacher educator, as she works to critically engage her own pedagogy through self-reflection and response to one disruptive pre-service teacher, Anthony. Based on their struggles together the previous semester, several unpleasant confrontations, classroom outbursts by him, and many conferences that ultimately resulted in Anthony seemingly genuinely excited about his learning, Herman Wilmarth admits to feeling, quote, slightly apprehensive about another semester of balancing my desire to live my pedagogy and my teaching and the unpredictability of Anthony's response to me as his teacher, but I was hopeful, end quote. Her hopeful stance was quickly challenged. She describes her class of pre-service teachers alive with discussion. On this particular day, they are in smaller discussion groups, and the room seems to buzz, with students actively engaged. Quote, Sitting in the midst of what I, as classroom facilitator, hope 
His impassioned learning and growing around the issues of language arts exploration is Anthony. His laptop is open, and as he stares intently at the screen, he occasionally stabs at the keys before furiously deleting whatever it is he has just written. When I ask him if he would like to add to his group's discussion, he gruffly answers, Oh, I didn't read, and turns back to his computer. Students in his group roll their eyes, shake their heads, and awkwardly attempt to invite him into the dialogue with little success. Their history with this classmate, I know from anonymous notes in my mailbox, is full of confrontation. Several students have repeatedly reported that not only does he not complete his assignments, but he makes belittling comments and judgments toward their own work. End quote. Beyond this, Anthony typically arrived to class late, if at all. Once in class, he wandered in and out during discussion time, often leaving for long periods of time. But they continue to lurch through the semester together, and while Anthony does not particularly engage with the other students, he seems to connect with Herman Wilmarth, albeit often outside of class. Her own impression is that she is gaining some ground with him, but what has appeared to be progress is soon called into question. Herman Wilmarth offers, quote, I felt that at least with me, Anthony had found a space in which to explore his ideas about teaching. When near the end of the semester, Anthony sent me an email that informed me that this was indeed not the case. I was shocked. With this email, Anthony effectively sent me into a reevaluation of my classroom and my pedagogy. He forced me to acknowledge that although I profess to teach from a liberatory stance, my approach can be oppressive. The challenge for me was to read and respond to Anthony's email from a dialoguing place. I was afraid that if I did not measure each word, I would silence Anthony even more than I already had. End quote. Part of Anthony's long email letter to her expressed the following, quote, Not necessarily for any reason that you could control, but I just do not feel comfortable talking to you about my feelings, and because of that I have withdrawn my efforts. It is not that I do not care about the work. I am just nervous to turn it in. I do not feel like my work is good enough nor do I feel that when I do work to my highest ability that it is recognized as such. I only feel like you tell me that I am not doing a good job. I do realize that this is a perception on my part, and I do not think it unflawed, but it is the way I perceive the matter at hand. End quote. His long letter continues in this vein, documenting the grievances of his time in Herman Wilmar's class. In the spirit of self-study, she decides on the following strategy. Quote, in the hours following my initial reading of Anthony's letter, I struggled with how to reply. Ultimately, I decided that the best way to do this would be to respond to chunks of his letter in the body of his own text. As I continue to assess myself as a teacher, I want to re-enter this teacher-student dialogue as a third, reflective voice. End quote. This echoes what Bolo and Pinagar suggest, whereby the focus is not on the self, but rather on the space between self and the engaged practice. Herman Wilmarth uses the data offered by Anthony, his long correspondence via email, but with a focus in the analysis towards informing questions about her own practice. She chunks Anthony's offered writing, responding in bits and pieces, working to hear the lessons suggested in his comments. We highlight below Herman Wilmar's thinking regarding entering into this kind of action research and why she decided to explore and probe what she terms her own stumblings. Quote, this self-study focuses on how I tried to bring together the goals of my teaching and research, which are guided by Freire's call for praxis, reflection and action upon the world, in order to transform it. These two semesters were also my first two as a full-time graduate student, fresh from the elementary school classroom. I learned both from this study and from Anthony, the student at the center of the study, that teaching and pedagogical practice is always, as Ellsworth wrote, a paradox that can never be settled and resolved once and for all. Although I attempted to teach my students, guided by the theories about the dialogue of Freire and Hooks in particular, I stumbled regularly. Anthony pointed out my stumblings, and this study is my attempt to answer Hooks's call to remain engaged with my teaching and students, and to examine how I use my power in the classroom. End quote. 
Herman Wilmarth grapples with her multiple positionalities as she makes her way as the instructor of the class and uses her awareness of the complexity of these positions as a starting point for her self-study. Quote, Each time I enter a classroom community, I grapple with my position as a person steeped in both privilege through race, class, and education. I am a member of the dominant culture and oppression. As a lesbian, I belong to a socially marginalized and sometimes feared group. Although more sure of my safety and position in the university than I was as an elementary school teacher, I continually debate my own self-disclosure as a lesbian to enhance the discussion of self-justice and issues of security and vulnerability to which that self-disclosure would expose me. End quote. Added to the mix just described was her newness to the role of university instructor and her youth. She was 25 at the time she was teaching this class, and Anthony, the pre-service teacher, was 21. Her very lack of experience with this teaching role made it a particularly productive time to do a self-study, which provided her with a way to get her bearings and learn as she went, but also added to her vulnerability, how unsettling it can be to bring into focus one's first attempts at teaching in a particular context, and then share the learning derived from the self-study with others. Herman Wilmarth held herself to a high standard in this regard, observing that, quote, the process of self-reflection is central to critically engaged pedagogy. Edelsky demanded that teachers and students question whose interests are served by status quo classroom practice. If I refuse to listen to the critique of my students who cannot find a liberatory space within the framework of the class, I privilege my classroom for those who can find accessibility there. My student Anthony provided a critique that not only frustrated and challenged me, he clearly didn't buy into my definition of a liberatory classroom, but required that I engage with my own reflection in meaningful ways so that I didn't constantly produce an oppressive classroom. End quote. As she made her way as a graduate student, now teaching prospective elementary school teachers, the critiques that Anthony offered her, in the form of his behaviors and a lengthy email, could easily have put her on the defensive. Instead, Herman Wilmarth utilized self-study to reframe his critiques as a learning opportunity for herself and make it a fruitful experience. In this regard, she is setting the tone for her future as a teacher, one who takes the path toward self-study, even in the midst of critique. She moved toward and into a tense teaching situation and invited her own learning. Herman Wilmarth concludes, quote, I reflective analysis of who I was both in my relationship with Anthony and as a teacher in a supposed liberatory class occurred in the writing of this article. The significance of this post-reflection is that it provides a future challenge. I have acknowledged that although painful, the teaching that Anthony provided through his email is both powerful and vital to my own process of becoming a more fully liberatory educator. He pointed to my shortcomings in a way that I hope will influence me when I meet my next class. End quote. It is this focus of the ongoing understanding and improvement of one's own practice that is the strength of self-study action research. Action Research in the Classroom, Monica Richards and the Bums of 8H. We offer one of the earlier pieces of teacher research to be published, Monica Richards' account of her classroom research, for several reasons. Beyond the fact that the questions Richard poses for herself will feel familiar to many educators, this example also shows how her questions shifted as she interrogated what was or wasn't happening in her classroom. In terms of her own growth, Richard's documents how she moved from relying on the expertise of published researchers to trusting her own research process. She continues to actively read and seek out pertinent professional literature, but adds her own research expertise to the problem-solving mix. While she specifically added various types of data gathering, she also incorporated things she was already doing and used them as data. For example, a daily journal that she routinely kept became an important running record of her reflections on the classroom. In her narrative account of the self-dubbed Bums of 8H, Richards, a middle school language arts teacher, sets the scene for her research by letting the reader in on what motivated her to undertake her study in the first place. Quote, 
Every year I ask myself the same question. How am I going to motivate a group of students who do not want to learn? I employ many strategies, trying a new one or two every now and then, but none has ever been so effective that other teachers came knocking at my door for the answer. In the past, I had relied on suggestions by published researchers and educators or techniques recommended by my colleagues, but nothing came close to affecting my six-period class, the self-styled bums from 8H. End quote. Motivated by the kind of desperation that can occur when teachers are faced with a class where nothing works, Richards broadened her original question about how to motivate students who do not want to learn to include questions related to teacher behavior. Quote, what behavior must I exhibit or model to elicit an interested response at the onset of the class? How can I maintain that interest? And finally, how can I get students to self-initiate verbal or written performance? What mode of interaction best facilitates motivation to achieve objectives? And what is it that occurs in highly motivational situations? I wanted to determine what environmental factors in the classroom might influence motivation and what types of rewards are effective. End quote. Richards used a methodology that included a daily journal. She had previously intentionally left the bums of 8H out of her journal, quote, because the thoughts and words to describe what had happened in 50 minutes with them were so horrendous that I could not bring myself to write about them, end quote. She also used tape recordings of class activities and student interviews and questionnaires. To launch her study, she shadowed 8H as it proceeded through its day, and although she was not surprised by what she saw, the cumulative impact of her observations was staggering. Here was a group making its way through the school day with little success or affirmation of the learning process. The bums of 8H were obviously used to failure. In what she terms beginning again with the group, Richards reads the students her research proposal, enlisting their help to communicate with her and work together on the research process. Quote, I began reading my proposal for research to them. They all listened attentively. Even George, who usually cannot resist laying his head down for a short snooze, remained alert. If we agree to work together, you will have to communicate with me. They all agreed to do so. I had no idea 8H could be so serious, so understanding. Reading my proposal had been the first step in working together. I knew my perceptions of them were accurate, and they knew how I really felt about them and their neglect of the learning process. End quote. By inviting her students into the problem-solving process, and by proposing to look at the impact of teacher behaviors as well as those of the students, Richards forged a partnership with her students that began to set a new tone for the classroom. Crossing the hierarchical lines that separate students and teachers is risky business. In being vulnerable to the students by asking for feedback, Richards invited the honest communication that was crucial to the study. She also invited her students into a reflective process that helped them demystify their own lack of success in the educational arena. This mutual vulnerability and reflexivity, with implications for change on the part of both the teacher and the students, set the stage for all to strategize together on what might best help them improve the learning process. Richards began to try some interventions in her classroom. In her journal, she writes about an experiment in sending notes home to parents and the risks she felt in trying this. Quote, about seven people had completed their homework. They read their compositions aloud. As I praised each one, I handed them a positive note to take home to their parents, rewarding their good work in language arts today. Norman was especially happy about this. Proudly, he showed it to the person in front of him, comparing notes, possibly. Or was he laughing, making fun of it? This was my fear. Is Norman, and others like him in 8H, too cool, too macho to get a positive note from the teacher? I'll talk to them about this tomorrow. End quote. Searching for other positive motivators for her class, Richards mounted a motivational bulletin board with a horse on a racetrack illustrating the progress the class was making in attendance, homework, and participation. She also devised a list of extrinsic motivators and tried to prioritize them in the way she thought her students would. For example, 
number one on her list was a bonus point system. In keeping with the spirit of partnership in the problem-solving process, she shared the list with the class and asked the class to prioritize it as well. Richards writes about their process and her own as she gained new information about the class. Quote, I discussed the priority of items on the checklist. I'd assume the number one item would be a bonus point system, where the class earning the most bonus points in one six-week period would choose their own reward. 8H rated it number 10, and after a little discussion decided it didn't even need to be on the list. They rated teaching resources number one. How wrong I was about them. I was also wrong about the positive notes home. I shared my fear about them being too cool for a positive note. Norman, Scott, and Dawn all said that's not true. They said they took their notes home and showed them. Norman was serious. Dawn and Kim rated them especially high on their list. About second, with verbal praise a close third. I was not only working with 8H to reorganize each strategy and develop classroom incentives, but I was valuing their ideas. They cooperated fully, taking the activity seriously. Everyone contributed ideas. Clearly, I had wasted many days assuming 8H was incapable of deep reasoning. I was guilty of letting their outer appearance and low academic ability sway my attitude. I had underestimated them. I found that they were capable of mature thoughts. I soon came to realize that they not only needed but also appreciated a teacher who was knowledgeable and caring, end quote. At the same time, Richards was allowing her own problem-solving to be informed through her reading of the literature on motivation, and her outside reading helped her frame her next intervention in the classroom. She reflects that it, quote, helped clarify and put into perspective my focus on motivating students who do not want to learn. It also provided a framework, a definition, and an organizational pattern for discussing motivation and study skills on a more personal level. I not only wanted to get in touch with 8H, I wanted 8H to get in touch with themselves. End quote. In thinking about the success of the unit that she had planned and the high level of student participation, Richards observes that the positive student behavior was due in part to the content of the lesson, but also due to the change in teacher behavior. Quote, I expect everyone to be successful and productive. They had vowed to communicate and work together with me. We had common expectations. In a tape-recorded session of 8H discussing a previous day's work, I discovered that retention was excellent. I asked them to restate, in order, their four largest inhibitors of motivation. These were A. Comparing me with another student in class. B. Picking out a certain group of students as pets. C. Lack of trust in students. And D. A teacher always cuts you down. A positive dimension of dealing with these inhibitors or coping devices were then restated. A. Get advice from a counselor. B. Talk privately with the individual with whom you have a conflict. C. Students' actions speak louder than words. And D. Have a cooperative attitude. End quote. Documenting many positive changes in the day-to-day -day interaction and learning in her class, Richards and the class looked forward to report card day. In a study unit they had done on motivation, students had voted that getting good grades was the first source of motivation. Second to this, in the students' perception, was having parents care, followed by having a bright, caring teacher. In Richards' own class, only four students out of 26 had lower grades than in the last marking period. In looking at their grades overall, though, five students' grades were up, nine students maintained their previous performance, and 12 students had grades that were lower. Richards writes, quote, I was not pleased with the results. When asked why so many grades dropped or remained the same, the students placed the blame on the teachers for the most part. Remarks like, he don't like us, or she doesn't know how to teach, all she does is pass out worksheets, had been said before and were now being repeated. End quote. Trying to understand why, when the students had put so much emphasis on getting good grades, there was not more improvement in this area, Richards, in keeping with the spirit of the research, 
asked herself questions about the behaviors of both students and teachers. She wondered whether the other teachers accepted the students as they were. Had they tried to find out where the students were? How did they grade? She wondered whether the students had fulfilled their end of the obligations. While puzzling over these issues in the larger realm of the student's experience in school, she was able to identify why things had improved in her own classroom. Quote, I can, however, explain why the students' grades in my classroom improved in four weeks. We had a common understanding that getting good grades was important. We were interested in the content of the lesson. We valued each other's ideas. We were working and learning together. This interchange of teaching and learning was the most valuable lesson to be learned. I also believe that what will be remembered in the minds of the students of 8H will not be a letter grade received in a class, but rather the memories of having experienced success and praise for achieving regardless of how small the achievements. I had been mistaken about the students' potential because of their appearance. Spending time discussing self-image and attitudes had proven beneficial. Until we openly shared our feelings about each other, there was a vacancy in my learning and in their learning. End quote. Richards ends her study with an increased awareness of her role as a teacher, as well as a greater sense of her students and what motivates them. She also got the results she was looking for, that is, a class that performed at a higher level, as measured in their grades. Although ending her research on this note, it seems that, considering the spirals of action research, Richards is well poised to begin the next round of questions, perhaps in a broader realm. She could pursue answers to some of her own queries as to why the students did not perform better in other classes. One suspects, based on Richards' research, that the necessary ingredients involve not only increasing the motivation of the students, but also increasing reflexivity on the part of teachers and students as to what they contribute to the dynamic of failure. If Richards were to continue the research spiral, perhaps she would have the opportunity to share her own learning and classroom results in a larger arena, working with other educators in her school. This kind of dissemination of her research could have an impact beyond her classroom in the larger environment of the school, potentially creating a new context for learning for the bums of 8H. The Spill of Individual Research to the System, Robin Russell. Russell's account of her practitioner research has its starting point, her own struggle with silence and voice. It grows to encompass an analysis of many layers of her school and larger professional issues in education. Russell's work is an example of how one individual's reflections and questions can become a powerful catalyst for the development of a multi-level approach to intervention in a school. In this summary of her work, we trace the development of Russell's research from her individual reflections to her institutional analysis. The research process helps Russell find her own voice, and as the research proceeds, she increasingly finds ways to use it. A teacher in the Utah public school system, Russell was a participant in a graduate program known as the Educative Research Project, offered through the University of Utah. The program works to explicitly challenge the hierarchical differences between teachers and academics. Believing such hierarchy silences teachers' voices and their input into educational reform, participants from the university and teaching communities work together to broaden the base on which such expertise is based. Linking understanding of the educational world with their ability to act in it, participants are encouraged to reflect on, examine, and remake schooling. In her initial self-reflection, Russell contextualizes the way that women are silenced in current society, linking that observation to her choice of the teaching profession. Looking at the profession historically, she discovers that teachers have rarely had an active voice in educational theory and research. As a master's degree student, Russell writes an account of her school's history that moves her into an analysis of the ways that school structures silence teachers. She analyzes the architecture of her classroom, the mandated curriculum, and the required textbooks, and juxtaposes these observations with the readings she was doing as part of the graduate program. Russell writes, quote, These readings released me from the guilt of what I could not change and gave me permission to change all I could. I gained confidence in my teaching. 
I began to speak out and not hide behind my closed classroom door. This signified a major shift in my relation to the system. End quote. Part of her graduate program, Russell was paired with another teacher for ongoing dialogue. She described as the horizontal evaluation method. They were to analyze collaboratively the relationship between their teaching intentions and their practices, identifying the mismatches or thinking through why they wanted to achieve a particular end. In this process, Russell came to the realization that teachers in general do not have a voice in educational reform. She observed that school structures, such as the teaching schedule, teacher isolation, and the historical feminization of teaching, contributed to this silence. At the same time, Russell was observing a change in herself and formulating her research question. Quote, the simple act of talking about these issues began to change my professional life. I was beginning to gain a sense of empowerment. These changes in my perception of the teacher role caused me to look at how others could also benefit from dialogue. A recurrent question began to appear in my thoughts and writing. How might our school, or even our profession, change if discussion and reflection were made available and encouraged? End quote. This thinking of her own experiences to the teaching profession in general, the larger institutional context, and the experiences of other teachers led Russell to look for a way to establish a consistent block of time in her school for conducting dialogue among teachers about educational issues. She reasoned that if teachers could have time to talk among themselves, they might become more willing to express their ideas in a wider forum. Drawing on her own experience and having learned to express her thoughts as her trust with her dialogue partner grew, Russell hypothesized that the same would be true for teachers if they were offered a safe place to discuss their ideas. Quote, Somehow, I felt that the development of teacher voice was a key to membership in the historically exclusive club of educational decision-making. Without a firm concept of what exactly I wanted to express, change, or become empowered to do, I leapt into my research. All I knew with any certainty was that I wanted us to start talking to each other. End quote. She adds, quote, I saw it as one possible avenue toward the restructuring of the educational hierarchy, of making some impact on the invisibility and silence that Thorne argues is an inherent part of a gendered profession. I yearn for new ways to make myself visible and heard, while bringing with me a chorus of other teachers. End quote. Moving from a personal realm, her own struggles with being silenced and working to find her voice, Russell began to contextualize her own concerns and become aware of the larger forces that colluded to silence not only her, but her professional peers as well. This kind of linking led to a different design or possible intervention. It was a move from the privatizing of a problem or issue, for example, this is my struggle, to this is my issue, but many teachers struggle in this way because of the design of educational institutions. The design of Russell's research moved her to intervene in a way that might encourage teacher voice, with a larger agenda of impacting educational theory and reform. Russell designed her research with the goal of restructuring the educational hierarchy and affecting silencing. She first surveyed the other teachers in her building regarding their attitudes about professional dialogue on educational issues. She asked how many would be interested in dialogue sessions should they be offered. Based on this information gathering, she indicated a positive interest in the opportunity to talk with other teachers. Russell organized voluntary teacher dialogue sessions, open to any faculty in the school. The research continued over a period of two years, during which time Russell reflected on and made changes to the process of teachers conversing together. Russell and her partner in horizontal evaluation continued to meet during this time, providing a second source of data. They met following each of the teacher dialogue sessions to compare the intentions of the meetings with the realities of what actually transpired. The pair explored Russell's assumptions about each meeting and planned for the next one. Russell analyzed transcripts of each meeting with her partner to ascertain how the process of horizontal evaluation was influencing the dialogue sessions. In writing about her two years of research, Russell explores themes that reflect her own questions. For example, she asks how much to structure and lead the dialogue groups, how to move them from Robin's meetings to one of shared ownership. 
She reflects on themes that are common to many educational settings, such as how to create time and busy teacher schedules for the dialogue groups, or how to obtain compensation for the extra time if the groups are held outside of the regular school day. She puzzles over how to enlist administrative support and sanction. Interventions designed to solve some of the issues that arose then could vary from a reflection on her particular roles and changing her style of leadership in the meetings to working to convince administrators that allowing time for teacher-generated dialogue could result in positive results for education. In the second year of the research, the teachers named their meetings professional dialogue sessions, worked out a regular schedule to meet on the third Friday of each month for lunch, and generated a list of topics to be discussed during the school year. Finding a collective voice, the professional dialogue session group decided to work on a specific project. They proposed a computer lab for the school despite the refusal of an earlier request by the administration. This type of empowered effort among teachers had been previously unheard of in the school. Russell attributed it to the organizational power of the dialogue group. As is often the case in the life of researchers, intentional actions coincided with serendipitous events. In this case, the school district offered the possibility of piloting one of three computer systems. Members of the professional dialogue session became part of a larger computer committee asked to investigate and decide on a computer system. The committee was given a weekend to decide which one they wanted and then to recommend it at a faculty meeting the following Monday. Committee members, feeling that it was a mistake to make such a costly decision with so little time to investigate the options, reported that view to the larger faculty meeting. Quote, Our faculty meeting became a forum for discussing the assumptions behind the administration's practice of giving us choice among limited options and very little time for making informed, well-investigated decisions. The professional dialogue session group that had decided to present a proposal to the faculty for a computer lab recommended the rejection of the option to pilot any of these three systems on the premise that the district's procedure of limiting our choices was not a choice. The faculty enthusiastically approved. Our faculty recognized and examined common parameters to the educational choice usually given to teachers, such as choosing between a limited number of alternatives, and found them unacceptable. End quote. The professional dialogue session group invited the district superintendent to its next group meeting. He accepted the invitation, which resulted in a working session. As often happens when dialogue is opened up, new information was gathered and perceptions were shared. The distribution of power was rearranged as teachers empowered through dialogue became a collective force, working together toward an agreed-upon end. Reflecting on her two years of research, Russell was able to document changes occurring in herself, the researchers, and the administration. The professional dialogue sessions continued in the next school year. Russell conceptualizes the next step in this process of uncovering and encouraging voice. Quote, the personal and professional ramifications of this study expand in all directions for me, as I see the broader implications of dialogue and educational empowerment. Parents and students have been even more discouraged from speaking than teachers. Eventually, I must find ways to include their voices as well. My hope is that I can encourage my students' voices while providing them with a receptive audience. This is what I have wished for myself. My personal journey to develop my teacher voice has taken me further down the path to the doors of more partners in silence than I imagined to be possible. End quote. 